This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello. I am Ari Lamb, and welcome to Good Faith Effort. We have an amazing show coming up. And, and by the way, while you're here, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it really helps people find the show. We have the incomparable Tommy Collison here with us. I could not be more excited. We're going to talk about the intersection of tech and tradition. But before we get to all of that, a bit about what we do here. America has long been influenced by the ideas and values of the Bible. So each week we take a look at a different portion of the Bible. We identify a big idea or a big question that comes out of it, and then we talk about it with authors, journalists, artists, faith leaders, and people from all sorts of backgrounds and traditions. So let's dive right into this week's big idea, which is all about the power of the past. So this week we're nearing the end of talking about the book of Genesis, and that means we're at the end of the story of Joseph. So again, uh, for those of you who aren't Andrew Lloyd Webber fans, just to review, the biblical character Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, and his father Jacob spends decades thinking that Joseph is dead. But years later, a fully grown and very powerful Joseph, who's now the, for all intents and purposes, economy czar for all of Egypt, is finally able to make contact with his family and he's reunited after all these years with his father, Jacob. Now, that scene where Jacob hears for the first time that his long lost son is still alive is one of the great moments in world literature. It's all about hope, redemption, faith. But there is one very peculiar feature of this part of the biblical story that requires some sort of explanation. And it's namely that the Bible tells us that when Jacob hears that Joseph is alive, he goes into shock and he doesn't really believe it until he sees the wagons that Joseph had sent back from Egypt. And once he sees those, the text of Genesis says, he finally accepts the fact that his son's alive. So what? Why wagons? Why does this of all things trigger Jacob's joy and recognition? It seems quite strange. So, well, there's this really widespread and ancient Jewish tradition about this, which dates to nearly 2,000 years ago that I've always found really fascinating. And according to this tradition, when Jacob saw the wagons, he realized that Joseph was sending him a coded message of sorts, a reference to his childhood. So what does this mean? Well, as the story goes, as the legend goes, back when Joseph was a child, he used to study together with his father. And the very last thing they learned about together before Joseph was kidnapped and sold into slavery, at least according to this ancient legend, was about a ritual, which is later referenced in the book of Deuteronomy, involving a calf, right? A baby cow. And without going into details, basically, in, in ancient Hebrew, the same exact word, depending on how you vocalize it and how you pronounce it, can either mean calf, egla, or it can mean wagon, agala. So the idea is that when Jacob saw the wagons that Joseph had sent, he could tell that Joseph was in fact communicating to his father, that he still remembered that last thing that they studied together. So it's a very creative reading of a syntactical feature of the biblical text. But that just leaves us with just one more important question, which is why was it that memory that convinced Jacob that Joseph was really truly alive after all these years? And I think the answer is that even though Jacob was happy that Joseph still lived, some part of him must have worried that during all that lost time, Joseph would have changed beyond recognition. 
right? After all, as Jacob had just learned, Joseph had spent most of his life now in Egypt, the most technologically advanced society in the ancient world. And Joseph himself had risen to become finance minister for all of Egypt. So he's a cutting edge policy wonk. He's a technocrat at the forefront of cultural and social innovation. And could there possibly be anything Jacob must have worried tethering his son to his past? And so it was that when Jacob saw that Joseph not only remembered, but appreciated the ancient traditions that he had once studied with his father when he was just a boy, that was when Jacob rejoiced. For he finally knew that Joseph, the great visionary at the heart of modern culture, was not only focused on the promise of tomorrow, but he also cherished and anchored himself in the wisdom, in the genius of yesterday. So he understood, in short, the overwhelming power of tradition to help build a better future. And look, nowadays it's it's fashionable, maybe even reasonable, at least superficially, to assume that the world of tradition and the world of tech, let's say, are and must be fundamentally in conflict. And I can see why that view is appealing. But this is where the biblical story of Joseph strikes me as so important, because it's this ancient and enduring affirmation that, in fact, these two worlds can come together with interesting, even uplifting and inspiring results. And so to talk about all this and what a collision or maybe a synthesis between the worlds of tradition and tech look like in practice, I've brought on the head of communication strategy and business development for the Landa School and really, you know, which is one of the most innovative tech schools in the world and really a person who is one of our most valuable public thinkers about the role faith and tradition play in a rapidly changing world, Tommy Collison. So Tommy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Tommy, you're a you're a San Francisco guy. You have a major role in what's essentially a really cool tech company that trains web developers and data scientists. This really ambitious project. Uh, so, these are all things that code, I think, anti-traditional. Uh, no pun intended. It codes. Um, but at the same time, you also just very publicly announced that you're embarking on a great books project where you'll be reading and studying the works that form the basis for what we usually think of as the classical humanities curriculum, right? So now even granted that you're including some non-Western works in the list, which you are, uh, it's still a project that not only codes traditional, I think it it's a project that is deeply traditional, which honestly made me think of Joseph in the biblical narrative, where he's this character who's both at the cutting edge of the ancient world's most advanced society, Egypt, but he's also deeply invested in tradition. And of course, there are two ways to interpret Joseph as a character. He's either someone who lives in two like unbridgeable worlds, so like a divided soul in the William James sense, or he's someone who modeled how to holistically integrate these worlds. So before we talk about your project itself, my first question to you is, do you see tension between the spaces you're inhabiting when you think about the Lambda School and the Great Books Project, or do you see them as integrated with each other? I see them as integrated in the sense that there's this kind of grand striving project that we always kind of seek to kind of understand what's going on and kind of humans are, are sense-making and story-making kind of people. Um, and I, I guess it's it's easy to see why they would be in tension in the sense of Lambda School being this uh, this kind of uh, technical education program. But I think uh, and kind of we have this conversation a lot at Lambda School of you know the, the tension between the liberal arts and and the STEM majors that I think is is a little bit of a false dichotomy. And I, I can kind of say more about that. 
But yeah, I think there's kind of room for all of them. And I think I'm trying to kind of chart, to, to the extent that I can, try and chart an interesting kind of chef salad of combining the best parts of everything. So you often hear that dichotomy, right? The dichotomy between sort of like liberal arts, human striving, the pursuit of virtue, and then sort of like technical professional skills advancements, right? So I often think about that dichotomy and there's something inside my soul that says it must be a false dichotomy, but I'd love to hear you think about it. Zooming out a little bit, so Lambda School is a cross between a technical training school, uh, like a technical code academy, essentially, and a job training program. So most of our students pay nothing while they're studying and pay nothing until they get a job. And so Lambda School, you know, we can have the best instructors in the world and our students can be kind of the best programmers once they graduate. But if they're not able to get a job for whatever reason, then they don't pay back their tuition. And that's how Lambda School exists and grows. And and so kind of our goal isn't just to teach them the fundamentals of programming, it's actually also to help them get jobs. And so there's a ton of kind of non-technical education that we do. There's a ton of networking. There's a ton of kind of just work we do to kind of help people break into tech. So it's fundamentally a technical school. You know, you can study one of two things. You can study web development or you can study data science. So both very kind of firmly STEM ideas. And one of the things that we hear that I talk about when I talk about these things is, you know, well, isn't there value in a liberal arts education? And I'm like, yeah, totally. So I was a journalism major at NYU. So I I was like the most liberal of liberal arts majors. And I say, shouldn't there just be more choice in the sense that, you know, maybe a liberal arts major is the best way to spend, you know, four years between the ages of 18 and 22. But there's no reason for that to be the only option. And, uh, you know, a ton of, of our students are coming back to, in fact, most of our students are coming back to education after some time away in the sense of the average age is, is about 30 to 33. Most of these people have had a career already and now they want to break into tech. And so you can kind of imagine if you're kind of 33 or 34, the idea of going back to school for four years is kind of a large commitment of time. It's a large commitment of money. It's probably not super exciting to the idea of kind of going back and sitting in a classroom full of 18 or 19 year olds. And so kind of where I come to it is yes, if you want to spend four years studying Russian literature, be my guest, let's just A, not kid ourselves that you're learning kind of the most in-demand skills for, you know, the 21st century in America. And B, let's just not assume that, you know, all things that are worth learning should happen in a university, should happen between two and four years, and should follow this kind of rigid schedule. So this is why I find what you're doing so fascinating, because like really for nearly a thousand years, really since the invention of the university, we've bundled together professional advancement with education about values. So we basically have this the system where you pay a fee to a school and in return, they try to give you both a path to a job or a professional network. And at least in theory, they try to instill positive values in you. Now, for a long time, that's kind of seemed to me like a pretty inefficient mechanism for delivering those things. So I kind of see one of your major contributions to public life is showing how those things can be unbundled, right? So through the Lambda School, you're delivering really valuable professional skills in the most targeted, cost-efficient way. And through the Great Books Project, you know, or other things like that, you're doing classical traditional education, but outside the context of a school, which I think is so, is really like the next kind of major leap forward that we need to take in values education. So is that something you've thought explicitly about? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm wary of kind of over-narrativizing uh, the Great Books Project. And essentially what it was is I had learned about St. John's College, which is this liberal arts college where instead of dedicated majors, you just read these classic books. Basically, the, the book list that I have is kind of adapted from this. But you spend four years reading classic books. And, and the idea is that you come out at this well-rendered individual who can go into politics or journalism or, or the legal profession and succeed. 
so I just kind of heard about this and it sounded interesting. And it's only as I've kind of started it or, or talked about it online or, or kind of talked about it with people like you that I've started to kind of realize that, oh, like most people don't sign up to read 150 books that are fairly dense in places. And so I guess trying to explore more as, as to why that is. And the kind of best answer that I can come up with is the kind of traditional path is that you go to college and then go into a career. And, you know, some people go to night school, some people, you know, do part-time schooling or whatever. But for the most part, that's kind of where at least formal education ends. And to the extent that I have a sample size of, of exactly one person, <laughs> uh, I'm kind of exploring what that might look like to not be true. Right. So what's, I think, kind of pedagogically, you may not want to over-narrativize it, but in talking about your great books project, so you've publicly mentioned two influences, and I just thought this was so fascinating. The first is the idea of applied history, which, you know, even if people aren't familiar with the term, it's something I think most people intuitively grasp when they think about history, which is that when you study history, the goal should be to draw lessons from the past and apply them to real-world problems. But the other influence you mention is something called Dafyomi, which I don't think is a household name to most Americans. Um, <laughs> suffice it to say. So for those who don't know, Dafyomi, which literally means the daily page, is the educational program which is now quite popular among Jews throughout the world and getting more popular every kind of several years or so to study one page of the Talmud, which is one of Judaism's central texts, every single day, so that over the course of about like seven and a half years, you can finish the entire Talmud. So can you talk a little bit about how the Dafyomi influenced you in thinking about the structure of this, this project? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I've always admired the sort of pragmatism of, of folks who do Dafyomi, and I've known people who, who are doing it. Um, I don't know if I've known anyone who finished it, which might be telling. But um, in, in terms of actually doing it, I mean, it's, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You just like a little bit at a time. And so rather than either waiting until I have more time or I'm retired, you know, something like that, it's just like, okay, what is the smallest amount that I can break this down to? And I believe with Dafyomi, it's kind of literally a page. And, you know, so I said, okay, well, you know, roughly 150 books over five years, you know, whatever way I kind of did the math at the beginning, it worked out to be roughly a classic book every two weeks. And that's like a fairly big investment of time in the sense of kind of, you know, you're not going to be doing a whole lot else if you're doing that. But as I kind of th I think I said in my original announcement, I mean, it's the winter of a global pandemic. And so uh, there's not a lot of stuff kind of really competing for my time these days. So just doing kind of a little bit every day, I guess, I guess it's not kind of anything gets done, right? Um, and so that was just kind of what I wanted to copy. Like normally I'd go like watch a Knicks game, but instead like I'll just read the Iliad. Like that feels like a good trade-off during the pandemic. <laughs> I, I mean, you say that, but but with each of the things, and I've, I've read, I think, four or five books at this stage and started two or three more with almost no exception. I mean, some parts of it are obviously super dense. Like the, the Iliad and the Odyssey are very human texts and they're definitely a lot of work. You read it much slower than you would read kind of any other book or a business book or anything kind of nonfiction these days. But the Odyssey is fundamentally about a guy who really loves home and has like fame and glory and really kind of could do anything with his life. And he literally just wants his home and his dog and his wife and his bed in roughly that order. And so there's something kind of charmingly human about all of that. I never thought about it this way. It's literally the plot of John Wick. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it, but, but I'm sure it is. And that's actually super interesting as well about the Great Books Project. In the same way that the Talmud and kind of Jewish tradition is just people commenting on commenting on commenting on commenting, so much of that, you know, The Lion King is just Hamlet, but set in Africa. 
you know, John Wick essentially is the Odyssey, but um, I guess modern day or in a movie form. Like, with, with lots of guns. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, I really wish I had seen this before, before the interview, but, um, <laughs> but th- there really is an idea that, that kind of the books on this list and the books that St. John's have, have put together, they're the intellectual ancestors of so many of our discussions today. And especially kind of, I think it's easy to, to talk about things today being unprecedented. And they talk about a lot in terms of politics. Politics today is, is so nasty and mean and polarizing. And, you know, you look at, say, the founding of America, where the newspapers were super partisan and really kind of smacked each other around. And one of my favorite kind of stories is that Thomas Jefferson printed something that basically kind of called out the hermaphroditical character. John Adams. Of John Adams, you know, basically saying that he's like one person in one scenario and a totally different person in another. These people weren't particularly polite back then. And the Great Books Project is kind of a really interesting way of saying there's not a lot new these days. You know, the questions that, you know, the founding fathers were talking about in terms of, you know, what should the relationship between the federal and the state government be? What should our foreign policy be? What should our policy towards immigration be? All of these are are conversations that we're still having today. And so both kind of in America itself, but I think also with these great books, a lot of which come from from Europe and and, uh, East Asia, you know, a lot of them really are at kind of almost the first time that these questions are being asked that we are kind of still trying to answer today. I mean, the way I think about it is, you know, it's very common to hear this criticism of curricula that are designed around reading dead white men. And I get two thirds of that critique. I mean, I I wouldn't put it that way, but I get the critique from a, you know, like a racial or ethnicity perspective. Like we should have a more diverse reading list. It shouldn't just be white people, right? From a gender perspective, you know, you're missing out on 50% of humanity. We should have a more gender diverse reading list. But I never understood the dead critique because the vast, vast, vast majority of humans who have ever lived are dead. Like if anything, we should be reading way more books by dead people if we want to have dead people be proportionally represented in our curricula. I mean, why aren't we reading more books by dead people? Like, why don't we realize that tradition is a lot smarter than we give it credit for? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I think the reason we don't read more dead people is that it's hard. These books are hard. And so if you're kind of an 18, 19 year old uh, trying to kind of grapple with these ideas for the first time, especially if you don't have a good professor or you don't have a, a group that you feel comfortable um, kind of, you know, p- people talk about the Socratic method and I'm like, it's really hard to do a good Socratic method. Like you need someone really smart, um, at, you know, at the top of the room. But yeah, I mean, I mean, more generally, I think that because these books are are somewhat inaccessible, you know, they're long, they're sort of tedious, they're not as interesting as Twitter or, or whatever. And, and to be clear, like I literally, I was reading the Iliad earlier and I literally kind of just got bored halfway through a chapter and like checked Twitter. So I don't want to like, kind of <laughs> place myself up as, as this like monk, just do, doing nothing but reading, uh, reading classic books. Yeah, I, I think it's just hard. And I, you probably need some internal motivation. So like my hypothesis with the Great Books Project is, I guess, twofold. One is just that there's a ton of wisdom here. And there's a ton of like the kind of seeds of so many kind of intellectual arguments and intellectual ideas that it must be interesting just to read the source material. Like you must get something out of it. And if that turns out to not be true, I guess, well, you know, I'll be more interesting at parties or more boring is the, the case. Right. Maybe. It depends on which party you're going to, I guess. I want to go to the party where they're reading the Iliad. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to put together some sort of discussion group. Some people have expressed interest. I don't know if anyone's going to show up. I guess that'll be the first the first test. But but the second idea that I think is kind of super important, you kind of mentioned earlier, this idea of applied history. My brother, Patrick, is very interested in this idea of the study of progress in terms of how do we get better as a civilization, what sort of things. Right. He, he has this great article with Tyler Cowen about progress studies. Exactly, exactly. Calling for a study of progress. Yeah, I mean, there are so many questions of like, how do we make science faster? 
uh, or how do we do science faster, which kind of is a question that they were wondering in a sort of hypothetical sense and became kind of very, uh, very relevant uh, in 2020. But, you know, how do we do science faster? Is technology slowing down? And if so, how do we reverse that? Like, these are kind of really important questions that can make such a difference to people's lives. And yet there's no, like, center for progress studies in the same way that you can study anthropology or sociology, that it's not kind of a discrete academic field. And I don't think the great book's syllabus is a, is a kind of substitute for that. But I think so many of the questions around government and democracy and interpersonal relations and things like that, given that these are kind of quite literally what these books are dealing with, that I think there's kind of a lot of value to be had in reading them and being familiar with them. So speaking of which, you know, one of the most ambitious projects that's typically associated with like tech or VC or, or, or at least in the popular imagination, it may not be true to the same extent you know, on the ground, but is life extension or like the radical transformation of human physiology, right? So that a human consciousness can last like either forever or some extremely long time. Sure. Now in the ancient world, because belief in the, you know, supernatural or the transcendent was so widespread, you also have texts and traditions that think a lot about immortality. You have this both in the Bible. So in the book of Genesis, the Psalms and elsewhere and in Greek literature and mythology. And yet the Bible seems very skeptical of the idea of humanity living forever. Um, and in the Greek tradition, you get people who strive for immortality, but at the same time, I think the Greeks also have this skepticism of immortality, especially when you consider how petty and poorly behaved the immortal Olympians are, the Greek gods are. So should we today be be skeptical of immortality or should we want to try and live forever? I, I think the big question that, that I see come up again and again is this distinction between, I can't remember the terms they use, but essentially living longer, as in the kind of absolute number of years you have, increasing that, and then increasing the number of kind of healthy years that you have. And so this question of, you know, as you get older, you get more aches and pains and things break down and organs begin to not function as well as they once did. And so I think that if you could live, if, if the life expectancy is, is, you know, let's call it 79, you have you have the kind of regular path that people take today. If there was a way of of maintaining your kind of forty year old self all the way to to seventy nine, that's kind of a completely different life. And and I think one that with a kind of much higher quality of life, where you know you can spend more time running around with your grandkids. You know you can be up and about and active and kind of participating in society and and all of that good stuff. And so I, I think the kind of twin questions here are you know increasing kind of health span and then increasing just like absolute number of years. And so increasing health span seems like a no-brainer to me. All the stuff we do around cancer research, all the stuff we do on aging, I think is sort of morally a no-brainer. Um, increasing lifespan, to overall lifespan, uh, or I guess, you know, shooting for immortality, I think is, uh, I think a, lot, a much more personal decision in the sense of, I guess it's a question of what would you do with those extra 50 years? You know, if you, if you like Moses, lived to 120, you know, what would you do with that time? Uh, and, you know, I, I think there's kind of an argument to be made that if we go on living, you know, does that make a kind of devalue the, the years or whatever? But I'm, you know, I, I could imagine myself in that position, say, age 60, if someone said that you get more time with your kids, more time with your grandkids. You know, I, I, I could see myself kind of maybe considering that. But I think we're, we're a long way from, uh, from, from getting to make that choice. And so I guess I'll, you know, hopefully when I'm 60, I get to, uh, I get to start asking some of those questions. Even the way you frame that, which I think is so fascinating, is as kind of living longer, not as a way to achieve more things, 
uh, or to improve your own life, but as an act of service, kind of. You want to be there for your kids and grandkids and potentially great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids. I, I like the idea that that even that desire, which would be, I think, aided and and furnished only by technological innovation, is itself deeply rooted in tradition, a sense of community, of meaning and purpose. Yeah, and I mean, like, like tech people in their 20s in San Francisco have somewhat of a deserved reputation for being kind of very focused on their startup and, you know, walking around in the branded hoodie and working weekends and everything. And uh, so I moved to San Francisco to work at Lambda School in November 2018. And I spent probably about six months being that stereotype of, of working on weekends and everything like that. And somewhere along the way, something just clicked. And, you know, Lambda School, I think, has a particularly good work-life balance and particularly good kind of parental po- policies around kind of parental leave and, uh, and kind of family life. But something kind of mid-2019 just clicked. I, I remember waking up and kind of wondering, like, if I wasn't working at Lambda School, what would I be doing? And I didn't really have a good answer. Like I had friends and we hung out and that was great and everything. And I went on dates and that was great. And like all of that stuff, but there was no kind of overarching thing. And that was, I think when I realized, look, if I wasn't working at Lambda School, I'd be doing something else interesting. But I believe it's David Brooks has an article in the New York Times from 2015, where he talks about the distinction between resume and eulogy virtues. And I don't know what it was that, that kind of made me make that switch of like, oh, I really should kind of focus on the stuff that actually matters. But I guess giving people the option to think more along those lines, thinking more kind of long term of, of you know, you, you've all these kind of BuzzFeed stories or whatever. Kind of, it's like we interviewed seven people on their deathbed and here's what they said that they regretted. And it's never, you know, what you did. It's always what you didn't do. And, you know, it was never working more. It was always with family. So I guess to the extent that we could kind of inculcate those sorts of questions or get people asking those sorts of questions in tech, you know, I, I don't think there's any kind of harm to that in the sense of doing something really big and meaningful and kind of transformative obviously requires like a huge amount of hard work. But uh, I guess just asking yourself if, if that's what you really want to do. I always joke that I'm a better early employee than I am a founder, um, <laughs> precisely because of this, precisely because I find it so hard to uh, to kind of do something 24-7. Well, so that actually brings me to, to my last question, which is I think that, you know, when you think about Resume virtues versus eulogy virtues, which, by the way, parenthetically, I should note, if I recall correctly, that column from David Brooks, I think he actually draws that distinction from Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who's one of these kind of like preeminent Jewish thinkers of the 20th century, one of these great theologians. Everyone's responding to everyone else. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I think you could point out that religion itself also provides a bundle of things to society. Like we talked about unbundling before, but religion also provides a bundle of things to society, community, a way to find meaning in in life and so on and so on. Now you might be able to find these things individually elsewhere. And so you can ask whether religion as such could be unbundled. But there is one thing that I actually think, even in sort of like from a programmatic perspective, that it's quite hard to find outside of religion. And that is destiny, right? A sense that you're moving towards something important and that and this is crucial, you're going to get there no matter what. Mm-hmm. So like Martin Luther King Jr., for example, or, or Joan of Arc. And I feel like a sense of destiny is really important for progress, right? When you think about progress studies. So, so I guess, is it important? And can that come unbundled as well? So as it happens, I spent most of 2020 thinking about religion for basically just this reason of kind of the, the kind of questions that brought me to it were, why does Soul Cycle or Peloton feel sort of like a religion like it's not exactly a religion but but it like sort of feels like it has certain certain traits to it and, and this question of can can you kind of get it from different sources there's a, a great author whose first name i'm blanking on but her last name is Burton, 
and she wrote a book called Strange Rites, which laid out the kind of best description of religion that I've ever read. She essentially makes the case that religion is meaning, purpose, connection, and community. And so it has to have an origin story. It has to give you a purpose in life as to, okay, given this origin story, here is how I'm going to behave. It has to give you a community and it has to give you ritual. And so lots of things can perform different kind of parts of that where, you know, going to spin classes gives me both ritual and community because it's how I start my day and it's always with the same people. But religion has some, it is something more than the sum of its parts, where even if you had all four of those things from disparate sources, having them all from kind of one source or having kind of most of it from from one source, there is something kind of self-contained and kind of all of the, you know, the three major monotheistic religions are all over a century old. And there's kind of something to that idea uh, that people kind of coming up with new religions or religion substitutes do, I think, suffer from this lack of kind of an eye to the past, basically. A tradition is smarter than you think. Yeah, more more like there's a reason that these things endure. There's a reason that these things are the way they are. You know, there's, there's the story of Chesterton's fence, which is like, don't take down a fence until you know why the fence is there. I think people are, I think, too slow or too fast sometimes uh, in, in kind of saying that there's kind of no benefit to religion or, you know, religion plus my friend group plus the internet gives me everything I need. Like, maybe that's true. And maybe that's true for some people. But given how important it is and kind of the role that religion has played for, for so many kind of centuries in terms of giving people purpose and meaning and community, um, you know, I would be kind of slow to, uh, to, to kind of, I, I would be both slow and not so confident that I'm getting kind of everything I need. Amen to that. So you can follow uh, Tommy on Twitter at Tommy Collison and can people still register for your great book salon or is it sold out already? So when I say it's sold out, that sounds impressive until we had a very low cap um, <laughs> because it is supposed to be a discussion thing. I believe there's a waiting list and I believe we're going to do other things and other events. But yes, there was enough initial interest that we were able to, to kind of close the book there. Amazing. So you can register, I believe, because I put myself on the waiting list, full disclosure. But I think you can uh, register at www.interintellect.com slash the greats. Tommy, thank you so much for joining me. This was great. Thanks so much for having me. This year of all years, we've learned two things. One, the incredible power of technology to make life better. I know we'll all rest easier once we've gotten that COVID vaccine. And two, the indispensable role that faith and community play in keeping us emotionally safe from loneliness and alienation, in keeping us spiritually close during a time when we've been physically separated. Now, too often people try to convince us that we need to choose tech or tradition. And too often people in those fields try to convince us of this. But instead, let's take some inspiration from Joseph. Let's see innovation as bringing great goodness for humanity and tradition as the great source of wisdom, community, and faith that make it all both possible and worthwhile. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. 
The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.